Jesus' mother saying, he's crazy, and his brothers too, let's come take charge of him. It continues by saying, Jesus is crazy because he's, he's possessed by a demon. But then Jesus, through the parable, says, no, I am the one who is doing the will of God. I am the one who's bringing about the kingdom and destroying Satan. And those people who want to do the same thing, who are willing to live for God, to, to see the kingdom realized and God's will realized in the world, then those people are my family. This sandwich where the concept of family is the bread and the story with the uh, impure spirit would be the center, all focusing in on the kingdom of God and God's work within the world. We begin with the story on Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. The crowds, they continue to gather around Jesus. We saw that over the last several weeks. Wherever Jesus ended up being, it was standing room only. People peering into the windows of the house. Those four friends unable to get through to Jesus, so they rip open the roof. The people continue to be amazed at his teaching and amazed at the healings that are taking place. They're filling the spaces and places and houses and everywhere in between, wherever he was, because they desired to hear him teach again. Some desired to just even touch them that they would be healed The people coming to these homes aren't the only ones that are finding out what's going on. For, for Mary, Jesus' mother, and Jesus' brothers are also hearing about all these things that Jesus is doing, those ways that he is teaching. In verse 21 it says, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. Last year uh, in Advent, we did this series talking about Mary and all the ways that God had transformed Mary. And, and I said within the series at some point in time, I'm like, we don't say this to like say, oh, Mary's the, the perfect mother because what we see right now is that God was still probably in the process of transforming her because she thought her son, who she knew was of God, was now out of his mind. She, as well as her other sons, thought Jesus was a crazy man. Unlike family members who will, will go to sporting events when it's raining or when it's ridiculously hot, to encourage their siblings or their son or their daughter or whatever happens to be, or or maybe, you know, unlike parents who will go to a cross-country meet and feel like they almost run just as much as their son or daughter so they can see them and encourage them, Jesus' mother and brothers are not coming 
to encourage Jesus in what he's doing. They're not coming to say to Jesus, Jesus, keep healing. Jesus, keep teaching. Amen. They're not there to do that. No, they want to take charge of him. Literally, they wanted to forcibly remove him. They want to physically grab him, take him out of the house, and take him somewhere else because they didn't believe in what he was doing. They were thinking he must be some crazy rabbi. He's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he doesn't know what he's saying anymore. we got to get him out of that situation, and we'll grab him, and we'll pull him out, and we'll be done with it. Jesus' family is not the only one either that has been drawn to Jesus for their own purposes. The story shifts to these teachers of the law who have also been frustrated, perhaps challenged, or maybe a little bit concerned of what they're hearing about this teacher named Jesus. The news had reached all the way to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and they decided they needed to send some people because they felt that their prominence as the religious leaders of the day was being challenged and that their power was maybe going to be weakened if they let this crazy rabbi continue to teach. So the teachers of the law are not coming to either witness what Christ is doing, to hear of his teaching, and to encourage the movement of the Spirit and of God's work that had been happening. No, they desire to investigate these rumors because Jesus, he came from outside the system. Jesus, he didn't go to the right school. If you're a Michigan State fan, he went to Michigan. He didn't go to the right seminary, but he somehow weaseled his way in. They were concerned, but they weren't going to just sit by silently viewing what Jesus was doing. No, they weren't just going to investigate. The whole point of them going there was to debunk the work that Christ was doing to show that he wasn't who he said he was, perhaps. They don't want to do it in secrecy, so they go out on public attack. So the teachers of law in Mark verse 22, 3 verse 22, they say, they came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, is driving out demons. Possessed, they say. What the teachers of the law here are doing has been done at other times. They attribute to Satan what they don't understand. Beelzebub, the name that the teachers of the law had really given to Satan. And they see in Jesus there's power at work teaching with authority, healing people of illness, driving out 
impure spirits and this power that's been at work, they're unable to categorize. They don't know where to place it. They don't know how to explain the power at work. So, if he's driving out demons, he must be a more powerful demon. He must have more power from the same authority that has, has possessed these other people that he would push them out of the way, out of his presence. Since Jesus doesn't fit into the categories, and since the teachers of the law don't like what he's doing, they seek to destroy his reputation. They work to have people question who he is and what he's there for. They want to sideline Jesus so no one will take him seriously anymore. But Jesus, he works to point out the flaw in their thinking. And the result of this encounter of the teachers of the law and Jesus, well, what we'll see is it changes the way that Jesus will interact with the teachers of the law going forward. It will reshape his approach to the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. Previously, he had been giving miraculous works, showing the miraculous works to them and giving public explanations, but he realizes that the miracles he shows the teachers of the law and the explanations that he gives them are no longer effective in persuading the Jewish religious leaders that he is doing the will of God. So he will no longer give them any evidence of their questions. He, he no longer really addresses them. He will address the surrounding people if they have a question. He will teach those who've gathered around him directly, but also in parables. Jesus isn't going to try to persuade the religious leaders. So Jesus, he does call them over, but then that's the end of his conversation with them because he begins speaking in parables to the people. Jesus he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? This is one force fighting against itself. To use another sports analogy, it's like you have a basketball team and one of the players on the opposite team decided, I don't want to play for the Bucks anymore. Now it's six on four. Someone fighting against their own team, so to speak. Satan cannot stand, his house cannot stand if he fights against himself. Jesus uses this analogy of a house, a parable, which is really an allegory. The strong one that's in the house is Satan. Satan's in his own home, it's is his own domain. Jesus is saying that the present domain of the world, the present domain of what we experience at that time, what the people were experiencing, was that that was Satan's domain and he had authority in that domain to do as he desired. And Satan was going to 
stop at nothing to hold on to his own domain, to hold on to the people that he's captured, the, the victims that he's taken captive. But Jesus says, in order to go into that domain, one must first bind the strong man. Jesus, just as John the Baptist said, was the stronger one that was to come. Jesus is the stronger one that has come from God to invade the domain of Satan, to bind Satan, and to stop him from holding people captive. In Revelation 20, uh, verses 2 through 4, uh, you could go there and you could read about how Satan will be fully bound. Jesus was beginning the process of binding Satan as he encountered the world and as he was expelling demons and healing sicknesses. These acts are not to be understood as the prince of demons, no. These are acts to be understood as categorized signs that God's kingdom has entered the world and that God's kingdom is indeed arriving and that there is a new and stronger one who will be ever-present in the world. That God's kingdom would set free all those who have been captive, held captive by Satan. With this parable, Jesus, too, he, he says the kingdom is here, but he gives warning to all people. Perhaps it was aimed at the teachers of the law. A warning about miscategorizing the work of God. And Jesus, he says in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. This unforgivable sin that perhaps you've heard about. There are many forgivable, and this one eternal. Blasphemy, it's something done with words. It can be done with speech. Like the way the teachers of the law attributed God's work, the Holy Spirit's work, to the work of Satan. Or it could be done through writing in the way that Perhaps we would write things. But it all boils down to, to attributing or saying that the life-saving work of God is not being provided by God, but by, is being attributed to and provided by Satan. Saying that something that is truthful and good is being delivered from something that is evil and heinous. It would be like believing that the life-saving work of a doctor was actually something completely opposite. That instead of trying to heal you, they were trying to imprison you in your own sickness. There's not a middle ground here. Doctors take an oath to help people, so therefore they would not hurt people. In the same way, 
Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and Christ has come to restore, renew, and save. There's no middle ground in there where we attribute the work of God to the work of Satan. And if you're concerned that you've ever done this, that means you probably haven't done it. Those who, who may have committed the unforgivable sin have no regard for God and do not care who he is, what he's done, or what he will do. They have no remorse for the things that they've done. They have no concern. All this goes on to say that Jesus is not some dangerous madman. Jesus is not someone who is possessed by Satan. Jesus is that new and anointed king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world, which is now his domain, where he's seeing to it that the will of God will be realized, that restoration will come, that captives will be set free, that sin will be no more. And so Jesus comes back to that picture of the family saying, those people who live in that way, those people who acknowledge the will of God and desire to see his kingdom reign, in all our aspects of life, it is those people who are my mother and my brothers. The people who are Christ's siblings are not there based on ethnicity. They're not based there because of their blood that they have. It's not based on who they knew, who they were born to. No, it has nothing to do with that, which is a complete change of pace for that time. In that time, family was everything even more so than probably here, because to be a part of family was one's social identity, but it was also one's economic identity. Everything one's family was tied to, everything they knew within life, the privileges that they had. And if one was to reject their own family, one is really just rejecting life because it was through family that they had life. And now Jesus says it's not through family, through relatives that are important, but instead it's not biological, it's, it's those who are on the same mission as he is. All those who are on the same mission, who are seeking God's kingdom, are now God's children those who can call them siblings of Christ. For those who do the will of my Father, they are the ones who are my mother and my brothers. Jesus is giving us a new understanding of family, saying that family is something that extends beyond race, class, gender, biology, and it's shared with a desired uh, commitment, a firm commitment 
to the desires that God likes to see and desires to see and wants to see here in this world, revealing God's kingdom each moment of every day. It makes me wonder, where is it that we are seeing the movement of God today? Where is it that we've seen God's kingdom advance? Where is it that we've seen God's kingdom be more revealed and realized in our lives and in the lives of others? But then another question. If we are one of Christ's siblings, how is he calling us to be involved in that? How is Christ calling our will to be changed and affected by what we see so that we want to be a part of that too? So that we want to see his kingdom presence expand more and more here in this world in our neighborhoods, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of coworkers, so that we all may be joined together as God's children, working for his work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, You're active each and every day, every moment. We recognize that we don't see all that you see, and there are, are hidden things at work that perhaps we don't understand. Hidden transformation that's happening in the lives of people that we perhaps don't see. Our prayer is that you make us aware. Open our eyes and open our hearts that we may see the work that you're doing. And that we would be empowered by your spirit to join in that work. Not for our own glory, but for your glory. For your honor. And for your praise. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Let us rise again in body or spirit. As we sing this hymn, it is a prayer that our lives, that our minds would be shaped to be more like Christ, that we would see people the way he sees people. Let us stand together as we sing, May the mind of Christ my Savior. Amen. 